0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. little lower on this, on this side there okay. welcome everyone so uh, some of you know I've been giving a series of talks on sila which is the Pali word for ethical conduct or morality integrity or harmony and uh, it's part of this uh, bigger series of talks on the ten paramis, or perfections of the heart. And uh, tonight I'd like to talk about how, uh, in a way, our most basic responsibility is to uncover this good heart, or this uh, natural clarity of the mind. And Some of you know this particular passage from the Buddhist teachings. This is, uh, particular translation is by Ajahn Mun. Practitioners, this heart is originally radiant and clear. But because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. So this is an important turning point in practice from seeing you know, our basic problem as I've got a mess here To having a sense that the mess here, which may be true, we we do sometimes feel like there's a mess here in the mind or in the heart, but that the mess here isn't isn't the uh, essence. It's just uh, an activity that's been set in motion. And that we can either understand or relate to this activity in a way that's skillful or not, in a way that's clarifying or a way that's clouding. So last week I talked about this predicament, you know, as moral beings, each moment what we do is we bring this bundle of dispositions, these tendencies or habits, into the moment and in a sense that bundle of tendencies, it meets the present moment just as it is. So we have sense contact, we see things, we hear things, we touch things, we think things, all of this is sense contact, and all that contact, in a sense, interacts with our habits, our dispositions. And out of that, we have an experience called this moment. And you can't, you know, we can't clearly separate the dispositions from the sense experience because dispositions color how we see or experience sense experience. And different sense experiences trigger different dispositions. If I have a lot of unpleasant sense experience, those unpleasant sense experiences are going to trigger certain dispositions, habits, right? If I have a lot of pleasant experience, that's going to trigger different kinds of tendencies or dispositions. But in any case, we have this coming together, the dispositions the sense experience and out of that we have different intentions arising in the mind or arising in the heart different impulses or you could even say about two moments before we actually think something or say something or do something there's a about two moment in the mind and our job you know as somebody who wants to live a wholesome a happy life is to begin to pay attention I mean often we'll notice down the road if we've done something unskillful you know we notice as we are going to bed at night we've got this yucky taste in our mouth from some interaction that we had hours earlier you know we can then in hindsight we can somehow get ourselves back remembering that moment where we saw that person or this person did something to us and it triggered a bunch of our dispositions or habits and we acted them out but that's in hindsight there's not so much we can do except you know feel what's left over from that from that moment so in a way we're moving the the skill and practice is moving the reflection from reflecting in hindsight to reflecting in the moment to reflecting even before we speak before we think before we act in that about to moment at the level of intention and of course in any moment there are many intentions some are quite uh, weak you know often the strongest intentions in the mind in any moment are not ne- necessarily the skillful intentions you know, it's just a matter of our programming or our conditioning so some of the most wholesome intentions are very subtle quiet and the very unwholesome intentions are really loud and if we're not mindful We're totally oblivious to the quiet intentions. We think all the impulses we're aware of are the unskillful ones, and we feel like those are our only options, and we act them out. So uh, as we learn, you know, as we feel motivated to be a skillful person, as we consciously make a lot of mistakes, the value in making, consciously making mistakes is, we get motivated to not just reflect in hindsight, but uh, in a sense, develop the power, uh, momentum of our mindfulness practice, awareness practice, so that little steps, we're learning how to be mindful in the moment as intentions are arising. it really puts us in this dynamic place where there's the possibility of doing two things. One thing that we can do is we can begin to set in motion the heart, the mind, that uh, we, you know, like if we were on our deathbed, this is the kind of mind or heart we'd like to be there, right? So that's a nice image. I mean, I know it's a little morbid, but it's actually a really useful image To imagine our deathbed lying there or whatever and what sort of heart mind what sort of qualities in the heart and mind would we like to be there in that moment or any kind of moment of crisis so if not our own death the loss of a good friend or a partner or something like that a parent what sort of mind state heart state would be useful appropriate and then why not begin now to cultivate that heart state, mind state, that, those tendencies. So instead of the set or bundle of dispositions we have now, like, you know, for me, you know, I have controlling tendencies. So those are often the, the tendencies, the dispositions that get triggered when I'm living my life. And I have, like many of us, I have tendencies of wanting to retreat wanting to lose myself in distractions. You know, I have a lot of those kind of tendencies. I have some tendencies of wanting to be aggressive. You know, Beyond the aggressiveness of controlling energy, there's even a more blatant kind of aggressiveness that I notice sometimes in my, my dispositions. But this is the time to start rewiring our dispositions. And the way we rewire our habit energy, our dispositions, is bumping the mindfulness right back into the present moment. So not in hindsight, but in the moment. And in the moment, like I mentioned, when our dispositions meet sense experience and then intentions arise out of that mixing, if we can be mindful of the different intentions, and this is really the place of Feeding and starving, it's one of the images the Buddha used in describing or teaching. So we feed different mental qualities or mental tendencies by getting identified with them or uh, paying attention to them and acting them out. So when we act out an intention in the mind, so it's one thing to have an about-to moment and it's another thing to think about that to proliferate about that around that intention and then to say something to act it out in terms of what we say or speak and then to actually do something so intentional actions which include intentional thinking and of course speaking and acting it makes a real imprint in a way it cuts the groove a little deeper so if we think about an unwholesome intention Speak about an un- speak out an unwholesome intention, act out an unwholesome intention It becomes, over time, our character We become more and more likely To be under the influence of that tendency in the mind That disposition is more likely to get triggered And when it gets triggered, we're more likely to act it out <clears throat> So we feed it, we feed the tendencies of the mind By acting them out we starve them by noticing the intention, but not thinking about it, not speaking about it, and not acting on it. And this is this is one of these uh, paradoxical places in practice because superficially, you know, we hear that spiritual life or practice is about just going with the flow, but actually, it's it's really not correct. Going with the flow would mean we're actually Acting out our unwholesome tendencies a lot because mostly what we have are unwholesome tendencies. Tendencies that are arising out of self centeredness, you know, like greed and aversion and impatience and fear and neediness and lust and confusion. These are the tendencies that are common in human beings. And so going with the flow would mean acting them out, reinforcing them, that those tendencies would just get stronger and stronger. So there's a lot of this friction, this wholesome friction in practice where because of the dispositions meeting the sense experience, the contact in the present moment, those unwholesome tendencies get triggered. Intentions, unwholesome tendencies arise. But because there's this wise awareness, this mindfulness there, well, notice this is an unwholesome tendency, unwholesome intention. We can't make it go away. That would be a kind of violence to want to get rid of it. But we can be aware of it without proliferating around it, without speaking out of it and acting out of it. And this starving is a kind of friction because the thing about intentions is, like I mentioned, another way to say that word is the about to moment. Intentions want to be thought about, want to be spoken about, you know, acted out as words and actions. So to not do that, to be present with it, but to not act on it, is a kind of friction. There's some heat that comes up. I'm sure you've noticed this at times, where you're inclined to do something, but you know better. So in a sense, you're refraining from doing what you're inclined to do. And it creates this heat in the system. But we can learn to trust that. Ajahn Mahabua, this well-known, one of the most well-known Thai masters, In the Thai forest tradition. He's uh, one of the ancient ones still alive. He's he's in his uh, mid 90s now and uh, very famous in Thailand. You can actually, at least in the past, you could watch a podcast of his morning Dharma talk in Thai. Uh, So it's like at 8 or 9, and we're about 12 hours different. So if you Google Ajahn Mahabua, B O O W A, you'll get it. And if you can, Figure out the Thai instructions, you can watch him. He's quite animated for a 93- or 4-year-old. And uh, he has this wonderful book you can read online if you want or download, A Life of Inner Quality. And in there, he, he talks about something that's pretty common in Buddhist monasteries in Asia, Asia which are the life and times of the dogs um, that just tend to reside there. And then during certain times of the year, of course, the dogs go into heat. And it's uh, really messy. I was meditating once in, in uh, Burma, and uh, it was that time of year. I think it was late, maybe late August, where it got really bad. It, you know, and it lasts for a month or two. Maybe some of you know that. Nowadays, most of our dogs are spayed or neutered, so we don't see this as much. But they basically lose their minds for a period of weeks, and uh, and they have no impulse control so Ajahn Mahabhura uses this like this is what it I mean we already have some of that wisdom in the moment where we're able to notice that this impulse is not skillful so it's really a matter of heightening that and we can be motivated because we know what it's like when for whatever reason because maybe we're under the influence of drugs or alcohol or just under the influence of a, a lot of strong negative dispositions, have gotten triggered because of certain life situation, and we know what we're like. We're like a dog in heat, and uh, you know he describes dogs in heat. They don't worry about being fed. They don't worry about being near home. They're, they're, they're sort of that. A lot of that survival mechanism is sort of suppressed, and the uh, desire to reproduce. Is front and center, and common sense of just like surviving and not creating problems disappears from their mind. And of course, they get injured, they're always fighting with the other dogs, or the females are totally uh, beaten up in just the act of copulation. And I mean, it's just amazing to see. Uh, The sort of activity of copulation while fighting off the other dogs, and just uh, sort of constant uh, attention the females are getting, and just how oppressive that is. I mean, talk about sort of an obvious experience of suffering. And especially, you know, I was in a pretty sensitive space, sitting there. the The place where they practice in this particular monastery was just this huge screened-in porch, so it's like 25 feet high, but it's all screen. And then right around the perimeter of this big screened-in room, it's pretty big because they do walking practice in the middle, uh, they have a little platform where you sit. So you're sitting right next to the screen. So the dogs would be just a few meters away doing their thing, <laughs> <laughs> not so easy to meditate. <laughs> so it's a nice, it's a powerful image. And, you know, you could just bring to mind your own activity your own behavior or our friend's activity that you remember when they were like a dog And he and just use it as a medicine, you know We keep it in our back pocket and it reminds us of what we're capable of when What's arising in that moment the intentions that are arising in a particular moment are really unwholesome and the power the seductiveness of them we sort of lose our mindfulness we get swept away you know we have words that do a good job at describing these situations where we talk about getting swept away and this is a term that they used all the time when the Buddha was teaching the whole uh, description of our human condition was being swept away in a flood and the practice uh, was described as crossing over the flood building a raft to cross over the flood and so the teachings that the Buddha offered were uh, you know the metaphor was how to build a raft to cross over this flood and the flood is just this movement of intentions you know that we because of our dispositions and because of our life situation the coming together of those two things The flood is this uh, arising of intentions moment by moment, many, many intentions moment by moment that are so difficult to cross over because the intentions, given the way our mind is currently viewing things, we take these intentions personally and because we take our intentions personally, it just feels appropriate to think about them, to speak about them, to act them out in the world. So all of morality really depends on this wisdom, bringing the wisdom here in the present moment and being able to discern whether what's arising is wholesome or not. In a way, like I described last week, it's like we're tasting the intention. Does this intention taste contracted? You know, does it taste like release? What does it feel like? It's about to moment. It's like a seed. It's about who we're going to become. Because every time we act on an intention, that becomes who we are. Just like what we are now, what's arising right now is what was acted on in the past. The dispositions that can get triggered right now by the particular experience we're having. Well, where do those dispositions come from? They're just the tracks that were laid down in the past by what we did. So the tendencies in the mind are just the grooves that were cut by what we thought, what we said, what we did in the past. So the rewiring is to starve the unwholesome intentions and to strengthen the wholesome intentions. This is the initial part of practice to do this work. There's a really beautiful uh, first chapter in the Dhammapada collection of verses from the Buddha and other people at the time of the Buddha. Cindy, would you be willing to check the thermostat and set it for, make sure it's not set below 79? Here's a little cool here. So the chapter is called Dichotomies, and it's really putting things in this contrasting way between wholesome and unwholesome all experiences preceded by mind led by mind made by mind speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox all experience is preceded by mind led by mind made by mind speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. <coughs> she abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. Many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. Whoever lives focused on the pleasant, senses unguarded, immoderate with food, lazy and sluggish, will be overpowered by Mara, these unwholesome tendencies of mind, as a wheat tree is bent in the wind. Whoever lives focused on the unpleasant, senses guarded, Moderate with food faithful and diligent will not be overpowered by Mara as a stone mountain is unmoved by the wind Those who consider the inessential to be essential and see the essential as inessential don't reach the essential Living in the field of wrong intention Those who know the essential to be essential and the inessential to, as inessential Reach the essential, living in the field of right intention. He goes on to describe how uh, not doing this work is like living in an unthatched roof or with a uh, hut that doesn't have a good thatched roof. And we just get soaked as opposed to a house that has a, a good roof. So the protection and practice. It isn't a kind of a kind of protection about being defended or tight. You know, like even in terms of morality, you know, I need to be careful in a tight way. The protection really is about wisdom. It's about understanding. That's really what protects us. And there is a place for fear, but the fear, the place for fear is to motivate us to be awake and to be interested, to do this discerning work. Are these intention, is this intention wholesome or unwholesome? Does it lead to contraction or to release? And you know, we don't always know, as I mentioned last week. But we have to choose in every moment whether we're going to say something or not, do something or not. But we'll learn. If we think this is wholesome and we act it out, well, we'll learn. Because... By definition, if something's unwholesome, it leads to suffering. That's what unwholesome means. And if we continue to be mindful to pay attention, we'll begin to see. It will feel off. This is the thing we learn to trust, our heart. You know, we think, uh, superficially, we think, if my heart hurts, the best thing to do is to distract myself so I don't have to feel it. But from a... A Buddhist point of view or from somebody, a spiritual point of view, this is the last thing we want to do. The feeling of discomfort in the heart is like our only barometer. It's our wisdom. We want to be able to feel what we feel because this is our only feedback mechanism. So when we do make mistakes, when we think something is skillful and we say something to somebody, and then we feel lousy afterward or the person reacts in a negative way and then we feel badly because of that well it's really useful to feel what we feel not to drown our sorrows with alcohol, to numb it, but to really feel it to be present with it this is why, you know, somebody who's interested in this path they may excuse themselves from the room and go to the bathroom and sit down there in the stall not because they have to go to the bathroom, because they want to feel what's going on like. They've just been in this interaction, and they know that somehow they're losing it, and they don't have enough presence of mind to clarify the situation right there in the situation. Because in that moment, seeing that person, hearing what that person's saying, all of their tendencies are still getting stimulated. And so they're arising of all those intentions, like I mentioned, that's so seductive. So it can be quite useful as beginners When we can in an appropriate way to remove ourselves from uh, the situation so there aren't as many intense intentions arising in the mind and then we have the possibility of feeling what's going on knowing what's going on feeling the reverberation even in hindsight from what just happened and getting some sense of what's wholesome what's unwholesome how to skillfully relate to what's been awakened here in the heart in the mind in this life situation what is the appropriate way to relate what is the appropriate what are the appropriate intentions to water to feed by seeing them and acting on them what are the appropriate intentions to starve by seeing them and not acting them out, but just seeing them just feeling them and letting them be not speaking out of them not acting out of them not thinking about them but just feeling them, feeling the force, right? We can feel lust in the heart without acting it out, without thinking about the person or the thing we want. We can feel the desire without thinking about it, without saying anything about it, and without doing anything about it. And eventually, it goes away on its own. But the, when we're focusing on the content of that desire, Oh, that new electronic device if only you know when we're focused on the content then it feels like that pain in our heart won't go away until we get it but when we focus on the pain itself we realize this is nothing to think about nothing to speak about or act on this is a contraction it's like that little sign of monopoly you know the card Go directly to jail. It's like when we look at it directly, we realize this goes directly to hell if we act on it, if we believe in it, if we get identified with it. So we're willing, we can't get rid of it because it's a natural thing. It isn't ours. You didn't ask for that intention to arise. We can't ask for that intention to go away. But it will go away on its own if we starve it by seeing it without identifying with it. See it as a natural arising. Feel it for what it is, this whatever in the heart, this about-to moment, this contraction or whatever in the heart. Keep feeling it and seeing it and see how it goes away without having to act on it. That really strengthens our resolve in doing this kind of work. I mentioned there are really two ways to take care of our heart to cultivate a good heart one is this very uh, steady rewiring redevelopment uh, of the heart through what we water what we starve it really changes the heart over time but the other more profound way is the more we do that work of seeing intentions in the mind not being confused by them, developing the uh, noticing that wisdom, giving the opportunity for wisdom to discern. Is this a skillful intention? Is it an unskillful intention? Just being present in that moment-to-moment way with the qualities in the heart. The more we see that wisdom does this work on its own, we don't have to get identified with that work of discerning the intentions. Just being mindful is enough. We don't even need to take the wisdom work personally, like I have to figure out, is this a wholesome intention or is this an unwholesome intention? And that avenue leads to deeper insight, which is this whole path of purification, of purifying the heart or of changing the dispositions in the heart, that all of that is happening on its own. So it's like this uh, experience of being free before we're perfect. Sometimes we think that the spiritual life is about being perfect, like having just perfect dispositions. Only kindness, only sweet-smelling mental qualities arise in our heart, you know, kindness, and joy, and generosity, and gratitude, and patience. And you know, we have this sort of sentimental idea of what the spiritual path is about. Of course, there's some real truth to that. And this is, in a way, we do a lot of the work here in this process of purifying the heart. But that's a burden. It's a burden to have to keep purifying the heart. It's a burden because there's a lot of impurities in the heart. And there's a way to uh, more profoundly transform how we do that work of purification which is this glimpse that it's all happening on its own. doesn't mean we're done. doesn't mean that we don't have any more unwholesome qualities in the heart. But that, it means that whenever the unwholesome qualities arise, there's less and less of a tendency to take them personally. So my controlling nature might arise. But now, over time, more and more quickly, I see that tendency to be controlling. As an impersonal force in the mind not personal it's not mark who's controlling it's just a tendency that's gotten Stimulated because of particular situation in the moment and now there's this force in the heart or in the mind and it's like this and That's all Because just seeing it for what it is means that wisdom is going to work with it in a particular way Which is to see it and not act it out? And it really releases the weight of being an imperfect human being. So we begin the spiritual life with some recognition that we are an imperfect human being. And it isn't healthy (laughs) being an imperfect human being, meaning a human being with certain unwholesome dispositions. And so we set about cleaning up the shop. Okay. Being an imperfect human being hurts. I don't want to hurt. So I'm going to figure out what to do about that. And that's just sort of paying attention in the moment, beginning to discern the qualities of the intentions in the moment. But in that work, like I've been describing, we want to continue to recognize how impersonal, how much that work is really the work of nature, that wisdom itself is a force in nature. It isn't personal. And it's more about getting out of the way and letting nature do its work. Once wisdom has been set in motion, once this habit has been established to be mindful, then it's really about getting out of the way. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but when the mistakes are made, they naturally lead to seeing the unwholesome consequences of the mistake. That's what a mistake means, something that leads to unwholesome consequences. And then that gets just fed back in because of the mindfulness it corrects itself and then life becomes a lot lighter less of a burden of being an imperfect person who wants to be perfect to just natural conditions unfolding naturally and the lightness of that and the feeling of wholeness that comes from not having to be the bad guy who needs to be the good guy wants to become the good guy and just Less judgment of others because we understand that everybody else is also these natural forces unfolding naturally. So I'll leave it here so we have more time tonight than last week to hear from each other. It'd be really nice for people to reflect and speak up about what you've learned in your own life, you know, how you've, in different places in your life, learned to bring the attention into the present moment and to see the different intentions or about to moments and to begin to tease out what's skillful, what's not skillful and how you learn to restrain yourself from acting on the unwholesome tendencies even though they might have a lot of momentum or power and how you learn to cultivate the wholesome tendencies to deepen those tendencies and maybe even how that work is feeling more natural and effortless over the years or any questions that you might have about the talk or any messes that you're still getting yourself in because <laughs> we learn a lot from those especially sharing them with each other so what comes to mind yes tom Could you say that last part again, a little louder? <laughs> <laughs> Is it embarrassing? Well, first of all, the mind. <laughs> first of all, the mind and the body. You know, when the more we look, the more we realize they reflect each other. So, you know, there are energy centers, and and here's the thing about the mind and the heart. We in the West have this deep habit of locating the mind behind the eyeballs. But that's just a habit. The mind isn't in a particular place. Like, what is the experience of the mind? I mean, right now, we all have an experience of the mind. Does it have a location, your mind? I mean, you might have a habit of locating the mind someplace, but that habit is happening here. So in a way, the location of the mind is here and now. You can even say now or the present moment is the location of the mind. um, mind, mind Well, they're really the same thing in the way that I've been talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just two words. I use both of them just because some people it it helps to bring them together. Whatever you've separated the mind and heart into, I think it's useful to bring them as together as one thing. I mean, there are different qualities of the mind or different qualities of the heart. So I'm not saying that it's a, a uniform thing. But I'm not sure it's useful to separate the mind and heart out. Why, why do we do that? What value is there in doing that? Mm-hmm. What else comes to mind? Yes, Liz. Was this talk recorded Wednesday? No, it's recorded right now. Oh. Because I kept making notes, so Yeah, yeah. Usually Sunday nights is now the night I I record the talks. So the talks are given first Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then last on Wednesday. So it's a different rhythm than before. Okay. Um, I just moved in with my sister a few weeks ago and you know, I definitely recognize strong intentions because um, you know, we haven't lived together since we were teenagers. So I, I like to control what she thinks and how much she thinks about things, and how she, you know, and, and so this talk has been very helpful in recognizing the about to do, trying to recognize the about to say or about to do um, intentions. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I really appreciate this talk. I, I want to put it to use. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Yeah, and to be really forgiving in that moment because, you know, the force of our dispositions, you know, it's really strong. And we have to respect the force of our conditioning and be really patient with this work and just be willing to do it again. Wherever we catch it, if we catch it down the road in hindsight, like this happened, oh yeah, this got triggered, this arose in my heart or mine, I acted it out. Now I've got this mess with my sister. So, even if it's in hindsight, just to begin there, you know, to reflect there. So, what's alive in the heart now? Maybe shame, or maybe guilt, or maybe wine revenge, or whatever. And then just to start there again. Okay, is this wholesome or unwholesome? And it's really okay to language it, like to ask yourself these questions to help focus the attention right at the heart or right at the mind, like what's arising what's alive, what's been stimulated here in the heart right now. And is it wholesome? Does it have the flavor of contraction or, un, or a release, wholesome or unwholesome? Yeah, Jenny. This is something I've been working on quite a bit. Um, it was interesting when we went to the retreat, Steve Connell had the, the term Dharma duct tape, which I thought was really good you know, you catch yourself in your ducts. <laughs> tape well, yeah. But the thing that, that I probably have the most struggle with is um and maybe it's is, is the idea of, you know, when you're putting on that dharma duct tape, you're sort of in some ways you're stuffing your emotions. Mm-hmm. And, um and you're not allowing what you think needs to be said um to make you know, and, and again, it probably gets back to your uh, attachment to your, to your own worldview, you know. But I think that's the hardest thing is is kind of letting go of that stuffing and feeling and just feeling what it feels like to know that what you're about to say is going to be unskillful, so you don't say it, but not being so attached to it that it like consumes
1: you. It's like, okay, I'm not saying it, but this is going to kill me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I have to stop my it's a, it's Yeah. A Yeah, and it's a really good point because, of course, we don't, it's not healthy to stuff emotions, ultimately. But it's also not healthy to run into the street without looking. So, and and as a parent, we'd be very happy to wrestle the kid to the ground before he or she runs into the street. And that's, sometimes that's what we're doing with the mind, too. We're like diving to tackle it before it does something stupid. And if, of course, it would have been better to catch it, catch that tendency to act unskillfully much earlier, so we wouldn't have to do the full body tackle. <laughs> we could just do a, just a little extinguishing because it's just in that bud stage, you know. And then just a just a simple noticing, oh, this tastes like aversion, and just letting it go would have been enough. But if we've been watering it, and so that that intention has some strength. Then it is, like it takes a powerful tackle to keep ourselves from doing something. And it does have side effects, but hopefully the side effects are much less than if we just let ourselves speak or act out what we're inclined to say or do. Um, So that's about getting closer to that first moment and beginning to catch right when the mind is under the influence of a narrow sense of self. And then because when the mind is under the, under the view or living out of the view of a narrow sense of self, then it's, it, it's always motivated by greed, hatred, and confusion, the confusion that is that narrow view. And we, we almost start to have radar or a kind of a deep, subtle intuition when we're there and to know, you know basically anything coming out of there needs to be stopped and because it, it's just all bad and on the, if we look at it on the surface like what the story says it's so compelling to act it out because the self-centered stories by definition are compelling because we get rid of all the ones that aren't compelling the only stories we repeat in our mind are compelling and as soon as they're not compelling we find one that's compelling so I mean, this is the great thing about retreat, is we realize that even the compelling stories after the hundredth and tenth time <laughs> are not very compelling. And we they lose their charm, you know, and we're willing to do this work because the stories don't seduce us. Well, I mean, you just feel, I feel. Yeah. And this is a paradigm shift where we realize that instead of paying attention to the stories we have about our life situation, we pay attention to the heart. I'm pointing here, but you know, it's not just this location, but it's the location of the here and now. And whether this here and now is, uh, is under the influence of some contraction or the flavor of release. Like, does the, do the intentions or the predominant intentions, are they about contraction, leading towards contraction, or are they leading toward release? And really learning to sort of uh, live and operate with the language of dukkha and non-dukkha, suffering and the release of suffering, right here in the moment, not sort of, you know, sometimes people think of when the Buddha talks about suffering and end of suffering, he's talking about cosmologically, you know, I'm a suffering human being, sometime after another 100,000 lifetimes of good practice, I'll be a non-suffering human being or who knows what, but it's really moment to moment, like moment to moment, suffering or no suffering in the heart, that's what we're doing. And it's like a a different orientation from the content of our lives, the story of our lives, or the moment, to this inner work of, is the heart contracted or released? If it's contracted, then wisdom naturally is full of care, like contraction. Be careful. Don't say, you know, dharma duct tape. You know, don't speak, don't act, until you realize, you know, until this, this sort of tendency to act out of greed, aversion, or this narrow place falls away naturally on its own. And then when the heart is open, loving, not in that self centered place, then you don't need to be worried so much. You just you're still aware, but you're aware that you don't have to worry. You don't have to be restrained because the heart's not it's coming out of compassion, not fear. It's coming out of generosity, not neediness. And so it's okay to say things. It's okay to act in the world. The image the Buddha uses in one of the suttas is of a cow herder. And you can imagine, you know, the the little paths that divide the cropland, you know, these really narrow paths, and how careful the cow herder had to be during the time when the crops were in and growing and about to be harvested, because if he allowed the cows to wander into the fields, it, as it said in this discourse that the Buddha gave, you know that cow herder would be beaten and you know thrown in jail and punished for the cows, his cows messing up the crops. But at the other time of the year where the crops aren't in ready to be harvested, you know, the farmers probably want the cows to walk around and poop and you know uh, fertilize they're happy. So you know then the cow herder could just sort of sit back and just know that the cows are there but doesn't have to constantly be sort of restraining the cows in any way. It's a nice image, isn't it, for how we work with the mind. When there are wholesome intentions alive, then we can be quite relaxed and just allow the personality, the wholesome tendencies in the personality, to just express itself. But When all our negative tendencies have been triggered, well, that's the time (laughs) to put ourselves in a closet and shut the door (laughs) until those tendencies aren't there anymore. Or to warn people, you know, I'm in a bad mood. Don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> yeah, I say that to my wife sometimes. It's I'm in a really bad place. You know, I'm just I'm really needy now. I'm really hostile now, or whatever. You know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it would be nice if we weren't that way, but we are that way sometimes. Thanks, Jenny. A couple other people. Yeah, Marissa. Very are, just the two of you, and maybe you don't really want to give in. I mean, even was a stupid argument or whatever, I'm just wondering how that might, how I mean, this fits into in the moment. Um, like, you know, even if I said, well, I don't really think I should talk about it right now, the person who knows you so well, they're like, well, what's wrong? And they keep pushing you to go where you don't want to go. Mm-hmm. You know? And I would have you, and he's a great person in their so. I don't yeah. you know. I mean, um, I don't know, it's just kind of that power relationship, like, you also know well, I should just back off this, but, but I can write and I want to keep it. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just wondering if you have on Yeah, it's all about becoming more and more subtle right in that moment. And, you know, whatever it is that's arising in your heart will tell you exactly what you need to know. It's the not seeing what's going on in the heart that keeps us missing the point and saying things and doing things that we later regret. So it's all about... Noticing so when um, you know whatever the part, let's say whatever the partner does to get us to do what we don't want to to what we later realize we shouldn't have done but that's just another trigger so remember it's always the two things coming together it's the life situation what we're seeing what we're hearing what we're thinking what we're feeling in our bodies that's coming together and interacting with all of our dispositions. So when you're when a partner says something to us or has certain body language, some part of our dispositional bundle gets stimulated, gets activated and arises. And the the thing is when the out of that interaction what arises by definition is seductive. So we have to learn not to be seduced by what's arising in our heart or what's arising in our mind. But just to see that it's just a force in the mind that's arising in the present moment. Oh, it's just this feeling. It's just this impulse. It's just this inclination. We don't have to take it personally. But if we take it personally, we're going to feel compelled to act it out by saying something or just thinking about it. Even that's acting it out. But if we just see it as an impersonal force that's naturally arising due to this intermixing of causes and conditions. We can have a more spacious relationship, to, because we know it's here because of this interaction. It will be here for a while. Eventually, it won't be here. And if I can just remain resolved to see it, to see it. See, we don't want to lose our attention, because if we lose our attention, eventually, we'll just act it out. So we have to stay mindful of it, but not acting it out. And really developing that resolve, like, it's okay. And that will also teach us like whether we should leave the room or what we should say that would be appropriate to the person. So that, Because there is some control we can exercise about this intermixing. We can leave the room. We can explain to the person, when you do this, this arises in me. Is there, and then make a request. Would it be possible for you not to use that kind of language? Or would it be possible for you not to ask this of me right now? Is it OK if we put this off until tomorrow? So we can make requests. And what that does is it changes the present moment situation interacting with the disposition. Now it's a different present moment, because he or she not asking us to do that. And then different dispositions are arising, and maybe we can be more skillful. So there are some controls that we can, we can uh, there are skillful ways to relate. So, we're always participating in the present moment. It's not like we're passive participants or just receiving what's going on. But we want our response to the moment to come from this intimacy, the feeling what's alive, noticing whether it's skillful or unskillful. And in noticing that, then we know what to say or not say, to do or not do, what to think and what not to think. Oh, don't go there. Don't think that. Because you know, if we keep thinking that, then it's. Inevitably is gonna to lead to saying something and doing something. So if we don't wanna say or do something, we shouldn't let ourselves even think about it. Yeah. Yeah, in the back. I don't know your name. Okay. Uh, Kathy? Kathleen. Kathleen. Um I would- I think so. Let's see if this, if this catches what you're asking or the comment that you have. Um, so Kathleen said about you know, building a raft. Uh, it really comes out of wanting to escape the flood. And, th- and I think that's true. Initially, when we take up spiritual practice, we're taking it up as an ego being, as a self-centered person who's overwhelmed by life, tired of being overwhelmed by life, and we want out. I mean, not necessarily out of life, but we want out of our suffering. And so the kind of raft, the kind of practice we put together with that attitude is not going to be completely useful. But that's OK. It's a no, it's a noble, uh, uh, appropriate first attempt. And we'll have to make an attempt maybe hundreds of thousands of times, really. I think that's probably accurate. Because we're rebuilding the raft all the time. We're sort of putting together. In every moment, how to practice in that moment. The more self-centered our practice is, the more it's not going to work very well. But we'll learn from that. So we build a raft out of a fear of life or fear of making a mess out of life, but some self-centered pursuit. But then the practice doesn't work so well because it's like built out of fear or built out of greed. But we'll eventually learn. We'll start to tease that out. And we'll see that you know it's really the mindfulness. Like, you can't really be mindful or open and receptive in the present moment, and really wanting to escape the flood. So, like even the instructions tonight about sitting, you know, just opening to sounds, opening to the body, opening to the natural movement of the breath. You know, I didn't I didn't use a lot of that sort of language about let's cross the flood, let's focus on the breath and drop misery and go beyond the flood, because it tends to uh, evoke a lot of our striving, which comes out of self-centeredness. Instead, often the language we use for ourselves in sitting practice is to cultivate a receptive, a non-judging, non-attached, non-identified way of being, a receptive way of being. And you see, this is a good way to build a raft. Because what we're doing is we're cultivating a clarity without expectations and without an agenda. This kind of clarity is the raft that does the right work. Because what it does is it sees the problem. But if we have an agenda, like to want to see the problem so we can get beyond the flood, that agenda distorts the clarity in the mind. So we can't really understand our predicament. We can't respond appropriately because we're not seeing things as they are. So it, it corrects itself. The important thing is just to get started and not to worry about being, the start being imperfect, because it's going to be imperfect. It's going to be imperfect until it's perfect. And then when it's perfect, we're done. So that's OK. We, you know, Part of even knowing what the path is, is walking the path. I can't tell you how many times where I've had an insight, it feels like I understand the path, And it's so amazing, because I thought I already understood the path. And it's like, now I understand the path. So eventually, we have a lot of humility that we understand the path, and we're also confused. But of course, we don't know how much we are confused. Because if we did, we wouldn't be confused. (laughs) So we should just assume we're still confused. We're still (laughs) figuring out what the path is. But we can get a sense that this sense of the path is better than the sense of the path we had when we were in high school. You know, and maybe better than in the 20s and 30s and 40s. So that there's some progress about understanding how to live our life. So we need to leave it here. Thanks for the good comments and questions. And we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words.